Section 33 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1F, Section 33, Chapter 69, Part 3. While so great a faction adhered to the crown, it is apparent that resistance, however justifiable, could never be prudent, and all wise men saw no expedient but peaceably to submit to the present grievances. There was, however, a party of malcontents so turbulent in their disposition that, even before this last iniquity which laid the whole constitution at the mercy of the king, they had meditated plans of resistance, at a time when it could be as little justifiable as prudent. In the spring of 1681, a little before the Oxford Parliament, the king was seized with a fit of sickness at Windsor, which gave great alarm to the public. The Duke of Monmouth, Lord Russell, Lord Grey, instigated by the restless Shaftesbury, had agreed, in case the king's sickness should prove mortal, to rise in arms, and to oppose the succession of the duke. Charles recovered, but these dangerous projects were not laid aside. The same conspirators, together with Essex and Salisbury, were determined to continue the Oxford Parliament, after the king, as was daily expected, should dissolve it, and they engaged some leaders among the commons in the same desperate measure. They went so far as to detain several lords in the house, under pretense of signing a protest against rejecting Fitzharris's impeachment. But hearing that the commons had broken up in great consternation, they were likewise obliged at last to separate. Shaftesbury's imprisonment and trial put an end for some time to these machinations, and it was not till the new sheriffs were imposed on the city that they were revived. The leaders of the country party began then to apprehend themselves in imminent danger, and they were well pleased to find that the citizens were struck with the same terror, and were thence inclined to undertake the most perilous enterprises. Besides the city, the gentry and nobility in several counties of England were solicited to rise in arms. Monmouth engaged the Earl of Macclesfield, Lord Brandon, Sir Gilbert Gerard, and other gentlemen in Cheshire. Lord Russell fixed a correspondence with Sir William Courtney, Sir Francis Rolls, Sir Francis Drake, who promised to raise the West, and Trenchard in particular, who had interest in the disaffected town of Taunton, assured him of considerable assistance from that neighborhood. Shaftesbury and his emissary Ferguson, an independent clergyman and restless plotter, managed the correspondence in the city, upon which the Confederates chiefly relied. The whole train was ready to take fire, but was prevented by the caution of Lord Russell, who induced Monmouth to delay the enterprise. Shaftesbury, in the meantime, was so much affected with the sense of his danger, that he had left his house, and secretly lurked in the city, meditating all those desperate schemes which disappointed revenge and ambition could inspire. 
he exclaimed loudly against delayed and represented to his confederates that having gone so far and entrusted the secret into so many hands there was no safety for them but in a bold and desperate prosecution of their purpose the projects were therefore renewed meetings of the conspirators were appointed in different houses particularly in shepherds an eminent wine merchant in the city the plan of an insurrection was laid in london cheshire devonshire and bristol the several places of rendezvous in the city were concerted and all the operations fixed the state of the guards was even viewed by monmouth and armstrong and an attack on them pronounced practicable a declaration to justify the enterprise to the public was read and agreed to and every circumstance seemed now to render an insurrection unavoidable when a new delay was procured by trenchard who declared that the rising in the west could not for some weeks be in sufficient forwardness shaftesbury was enraged at these perpetual cautions and delays in an enterprise which he thought nothing but courage and celerity could render effectual he threatened to commence the insurrection with his friends in the city alone and he boasted that he had ten thousand brisk boys as he called them who on a motion of his finger were ready to fly to arms monmouth russell and the other conspirators were during some time in apprehensions lest despair should push him into some dangerous measure when they heard that after a long combat between fear and rage he had at last abandoned all hopes of success and had retired to holland he lived in a private manner at amsterdam and for greater security desired to be admitted into the magistracy of that city but his former violent counsels against the dutch commonwealth were remembered and all applications from him were rejected he died soon after and his end gave no sorrow to his friends nor joy to his enemies his furious temper notwithstanding his capacity had done great injury to the cause in which he was engaged the violences and iniquities which he suggested and encouraged were greater than even faction itself could endure and men could not forbear sometimes recollecting that the same person who had become so zealous a patriot was once a most prostitute courtier it is remarkable that this man whose principles and conducts were in all other respects so exceptionable proved an excellent chancellor and that all his decrees while he possessed that high office were equally remarkable for justness and for integrity so difficult is it to find in history a character either wholly bad or perfectly good though the prejudices of party make writers run easily into the extremes both of panegyric and of satire after shaftesbury's departure the conspirators found some difficulty in renewing the correspondence with the city malcontents who had been accustomed to depend solely on that nobleman their common hopes however as well as common fears made them at least have recourse to each other and a regular project of an insurrection was again formed a council of six was erected consisting of monmouth russell essex howard algernon sidney and john hamden grandson of the great parliamentary leader these men entered into an agreement with argyle and the scottish malcontents 
who engaged that, upon the payment of ten thousand pounds for the purchase of arms in Holland, they would bring the Covenanters into the field. Insurrections likewise were anew projected in Cheshire and the West, as well as in the city, and some meetings of the leaders were held in order to reduce these projects into form. The conspirators differed extremely in their views. Sidney was passionate for a commonwealth. Essex had embraced the same project. But Monmouth had entertained hopes of acquiring the crown for himself. Russell, as well as Hampden, was much attached to the ancient constitution, and intended only the exclusion of the duke and the redress of grievances. Lord Howard was a man of no principle, and was ready to embrace any party which his immediate interest should recommend to him. But notwithstanding this difference of characters and of views, their common hatred of the duke and the present administration united them in one party, and the dangerous experiment of an insurrection was fully resolved on. While these schemes were concerning among the leaders, there was an inferior order of conspirators who held frequent meetings and, together with the insurrection, carried on projects quite unknown to Monmouth and the Cobble of Six. Among these men were Colonel Rumsey, an old Republican officer, who had distinguished himself in Portugal, and had been recommended to the King by Marischal Schomberg, Lieutenant Colonel Walcott, likewise a Republican officer, Goodenough, under-sheriff of London, a zealous and noted party man, West, Tyler, Norton, Aloff, lawyers, Ferguson, Ruse, Hone, Keeling, Holloway, Bourne, Lee, Rumbald. Most of these last were merchants of tradesmen, and the only persons of this confederacy who had access to the leaders of the party were Rumsey and Ferguson. When these men met together, they indulged themselves in the most desperate and most criminal discourse. They frequently mentioned the assassination of the king and the duke, to which they had given the familiar appellation of lopping. They even went so far as to have thought of a scheme for that purpose. Rumbald, who was a malster, possessed a farm called the Rye House, which lay on the road to Newmarket, whither the king commonly went once a year for the diversion of the races. A plan of this farm had been laid before some of the conspirators by Rumbald, who showed them how easy it would be, by overturning a cart, to stop at that place the king's coach, while they might fire upon him from the hedges, and be enabled afterwards, through by-lanes and across the fields, to make their escape. But though the plausibility of this scheme gave great pleasure to the conspirators, no concerted design was as yet laid, nor any men, horses, or arms provided. The whole was little more than loose discourse, the overflowings of their zeal and rancor. The house in which the king lived at Newmarket took fire accidentally, and he was obliged to leave that place eight days sooner than he intended. To this circumstance his safety was afterwards ascribed, when the conspiracy was detected, and the court party could not sufficiently admire the wise dispensations of providence. It is indeed certain that, as the king had thus unexpectedly left Newmarket, he was worse attended than usual, and Rumbald informed his confederates with regret what a fine opportunity was thus unfortunately lost. 
Among the conspirators I have mentioned Keeling, a salter in London. This man had been engaged in a bold measure of arresting the mayor of London at the suit of Papillon and Dubois, the outed sheriffs, and being liable to prosecution for that action, he thought it safest to purchase a pardon by revealing the conspiracy in which he was deeply concerned. He brought to Secretary Jenkins intelligence of the assassination plot, but as he was a single evidence, the secretary, whom many false plots had probably rendered incredulous, scrupled to issue warrants for the commitment of so great a number of persons. Keeling, therefore, in order to fortify his testimony, engaged his brother in treasonable discourse with Goodenough, one of the conspirators, and Jenkins began now to give more attention to the intelligence. The conspirators had got some hint of the danger in which they were involved, and all of them concealed themselves. One person alone, of the name of Barber, an instrument-maker, was seized, and as his confession concurred in many particulars with Keeling's information, the affair seemed to be put out of all question, and a more diligent search was everywhere made after the conspirators. West, the lawyer, and Colonel Rumsey, finding the perils to which they were exposed in endeavoring to escape, resolved to save their own lives at the expense of their companions, and they surrendered themselves with an intention of becoming evidence. West could do little more than confirm the testimony of Keeling with regard to the assassination plot. But Rumsey, besides giving additional confirmation of the same design, was at last, though with much difficulty, led to reveal the meetings at Shepherd's. Shepherd was immediately apprehended, and had not the courage to maintain fidelity to his confederates. Upon his information, orders were issued for arresting the great men engaged in the conspiracy. Monmouth absconded. Russell was sent to the tower. Gray was arrested, but escaped from the messenger. Howard was taken while he concealed himself in a chimney, and being a man of profligate morals, as well as indigent circumstances, he scrupled not, in hopes of a pardon and a reward, to reveal the whole conspiracy. Essex, Sidney, and Hamden were immediately apprehended upon his evidence. Every day some of the conspirators were detected in their lurking-places and thrown into prison. Lieutenant Colonel Walcott was first brought to his trial. This man, who was once noted for bravery, had been so far overcome by the love of life that he had written to Secretary Jenkins and had offered upon promise of pardon to turn evidence. But no sooner had he taken this mean step than he felt more generous sentiments arise in him, and he endeavored, though in vain, to conceal himself. The witnesses against him were Rumsey, West, Shepherd, together with Bourne, a brewer. His own letter to the secretary was produced, and rendered the testimony of the witnesses unquestionable. Hone and Ruse were also condemned. These two men, as well as Walcott, acknowledged at their execution the justice of the sentence, and from their trial and confession it is sufficiently apparent that the plan of an insurrection had been regularly formed, and that even the assassination had been often talked of, and not without the approbation of many of the conspirators. 
The condemnation of these criminals was probably intended as a preparative to the trial of Lord Russell, and served to impress the public with a thorough belief of the conspiracy, as well as a horror against it. The witnesses produced against the noble prisoner were Rumsey, Shepherd, and Lord Howard. Rumsey swore that he himself had been introduced to the cobble at Shepherd's, where Russell was present, and had delivered them a message from Shaftesbury, urging them to hasten the intended insurrection, but had received for answer that it was found necessary to delay the design, and that Shaftesbury must therefore, for some time, rest contented. This answer, he said, was delivered by Ferguson, but was assented to by the prisoner. He added that some discourse had been entered into about taking a survey of the guards, and he thought that Monmouth, Gray, and Armstrong undertook to view them. Shepherd deposed that his house had beforehand been bespoken by Ferguson for the secret meeting of the conspirators, and that he had been careful to keep all his servants from approaching them, and had served them himself. Their discourse, he said, ran chiefly upon the means of surprising the guards, and it was agreed that Monmouth and his two friends should take a survey of them. The report which they brought next meeting was that the guards were remiss, and that the design was practicable, but he did not affirm that any resolution was taken of executing it. The prisoner, he thought, was present at both of these meetings, but he was sure that at least he was present at one of them. A declaration, he added, had been read by Ferguson in Russell's presence. The reasons of the intended insurrection were there set forth, and all the public grievances fully displayed. Lord Howard had been one of the cobble of six, established after Shaftesbury's flight, and two meetings had been held by the conspirators, one at Hamden's, another at Russell's. Howard deposed that, at the first meeting, it was agreed to begin the insurrection in the country before the city. The places were fixed, the proper quantity and kind of arms agreed on, and the whole plan of operations concerted. That at the second meeting, the conversation chiefly turned upon their correspondence with Argyle and the discontented Scots, and that the principal management of that affair was entrusted to Sidney, who had sent one Aaron Smith into Scotland with proper instructions. He added that in these deliberations no question was put or votes collected, but there was no contradiction, and, as he took it, all of them, and the prisoner among the rest, gave their consent. Rumsey and Shepherd were very unwilling witnesses against Lord Russell, and it appears from Gray's secret history that, if they had pleased, they could have given a more explicit testimony against him. This reluctance, together with the difficulty in recollecting circumstances of a conversation which had passed above eight months before, and which the persons had not at that time any intention to reveal, may beget some slight objection to their evidence. But, on the whole, it was undoubtedly proved that the insurrection had been deliberated on by the prisoner, and fully resolved. The surprisal of the guards deliberated on, but not fully resolved, and that an assassination had never once been mentioned nor imagined by him. So far the matter of fact seemed certain, but still with regard to law there remained a difficulty, and that of an important nature. 
The English laws of treason, both in the manner of defining that crime, and in the proof required, are the mildest and most indulgent, and consequently the most equitable that are anywhere to be found. The two chief species of treason contained in the statute of Edward III are the encompassing and intending of the king's death, and the actually levying of war against him. And by the law of Mary, the crime must be proved by the concurring testimony of two witnesses to some overt act tending to these purposes. But the lawyers, partly desirous of paying court to the sovereign, partly convinced of ill consequences which might attend such narrow limitations, had introduced a greater latitude both in the proof and definition of the crime. It was not required that the two witnesses should testify to the same precise overt act. It was sufficient that they both testified some overt act of the same treason. And though this evasion may seem a subtlety, it had long prevailed in the courts of judicature, and had at last been solemnly fixed by the Parliament at the trial of Lord Stafford. The lawyers had used the same freedom with the law of Edward III. They had observed that, by that statute, if a man should enter into a conspiracy for a rebellion, should even fix a correspondence with foreign powers for that purpose, should provide arms and money, yet if he were detected and no rebellion ensued, he could not be tried for treason. To prevent this inconvenience, which it had been better to remedy by a new law, they had commonly laid their indictment for intending the death of the king, and had produced the intention of rebellion as a proof of that other intention. But though this form of indictment and trial was very frequent, and many criminals had received sentence upon it, it was still considered as somewhat irregular, and was plainly confounding by a sophism two species of treason, which the statute had accurately distinguished. What made this refinement still more exceptionable was that a law had passed soon after the Restoration, in which the consulting or the intending of a rebellion was, during Charles's lifetime, declared treason, and it was required that the prosecution should be commenced within six months after the crime was committed. But notwithstanding this statute, the lawyers had persevered, as they still do persevere, in the old form of indictment, and both Sir Harry Vane and Oliver Plunkett, titular primate of Ireland, had been tried by it. Such was the general horror entertained against the old Republicans and the Popish conspirators, that no one had murmured against this interpretation of the statute, and the lawyers thought that they might follow the precedent, even in the case of the popular and beloved Lord Russell. Russell's crime fell plainly within the statute of Charles the Second, but the facts sworn to by Rumsey and Shepherd were beyond the six months required by law, and to the other facts Howard was a single witness. To make the indictment, therefore, more extensive, the intention of murdering the king was comprehended in it, and for proof of this intention the conspiracy for raising a rebellion was assigned and what seemed to bring the matter still nearer, the design of attacking the king's guard. End of section 33, chapter 69, part 3. Recording by Jim Dennison, J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N, voice.com.